One of the key components of the psychology of smell is this really tight-knit connection between smell and memory. I'm sure you've experienced this. I'm sure you know this in the same way that I have all kinds of connections in my own mind. And actually, as we begin this morning, I want you to think about that and to stop and kind of close your eyes for a moment and think back on cherished memories that you have of times when you've experienced authentic love. For some of you, that might be in a relationship with a grandparent, uh, maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe it's a particular place. But think back to those memories. What do you smell? For me, I know what I smell. I can easily remember the, the hug from my carpenter dad when he'd come home from work and smelling the pine wood and the sawdust on him, uh, knowing his embrace. I can smell the rooms in my childhood home. I, I had good and loving parents. And I associate so many of my memories with the smell of the pine wood in their sunroom uh, or the smell of the kitchen table uh, where my mom would serve us food and the baking smells coming out of the oven would fill the house. What's interesting to me as we think about this is that if I were to somehow hack your brain, if I had that ability to hack your brain and based on some image that I'd seen or maybe on some footage that I'd seen, try to reproduce a memory in your mind of something that you've experienced, you would actually be able to discern what a false memory is from a real one by the fragrance. You could identify whether the fragrance of authentic love and the smell that you associate with that is real or it's something that I've had to invent to try and put there in its place. And you'd be able to spot a fake. Now, when we look at our text this morning, we need to realize something that's interesting. We realize that John knows what authentic love is and he understands what it smells like. Because John, the apostle, has lived with Jesus. He's this old pastor, apostle, this early witness of Jesus who knew what it was like to live with him, to be around him, to see what love incarnate looked like and how it acted, how it sacrificed on the cross and rose from the dead in order to create a church full of the love of God. And he writes now to us and he understands that the stamp then of authentic Christian faith is this Christ-like love at work in his church. He knows that authentic Christianity can be discerned by whether we have the fragrance of the life of Christ permeating our lives. This morning, we're going to dive into this text. We're going to explore this idea and look and discern what this authentic Christianity is. Um, and we're going to do it in two very unequally weighted points. I'm going to just have that caveat out there. First, we're going to look at the way that God's children love one another. And we're going to spend 90% of our time there this morning. And then second, we're going to look briefly at the way that God's children, as they love one another, have confidence in our faith as a result. My prayer this morning as we unpack this text is that we would grow to love one another as Jesus himself has loved us. That that's what would happen as we are exposed to the word of God. That something would change and shift in our hearts. That we'd receive this word by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we'd repent of what is false and cling to what is true. And that we would grow to become more and more like Jesus and show his love outward in this city. So right now, we're going to look right away, jumping in at our first point, that God's children love one another. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. John writes this. He says, 
For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. This is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Here John's referencing this apostolic message that he's referenced again and again and again, the message of the gospel. The message that the churches that he was writing to had heard from the beginning is a message of the gospel. And the central teaching of that gospel, the central ethical or moral teaching of that gospel is this command that we love one another. The central lived out experience of the Christian life is that Christians should love one another. And the message of the gospel is all about God's transformative love. Taking self-serving and self-loving people in our sin and our rebellion against God and changing us so that we become lovers of God. We, we love him. We love his word. And we love others as well. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live that love outward. And this work of love in our hearts, it's the fulfillment actually of all of God's plans and purposes in the Bible. Ever since the fall into sin of Adam and Eve, we've been living in our selfishness, but God has worked and in the fulfillment of all that he's taught to bring about this moment by the Holy Spirit in Jesus where his law and his righteousness are fulfilled in human hearts in our love for one another. Paul writes about this. In Galatians 5 verse 14, he summarizes this heart of the gospel teaching. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We must love one another. And yet, the reality is that we struggle with this, don't we? We understand this teaching. We've, we've seen it taught before already in this letter. And yet, we struggle. And so John, like the good pastor he is, he circles back around this command for us to love one another here. And he drives this point home further in this text through a series of two contrasts. First, he shows us that God's children don't act like Cain. And second, he shows us that they do love like Jesus. So look at what he says in verse 12 as he drives home this point that we will be seen authentically in our Christian love uh, through these two contrasts. In verse 12, he writes, we should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And the first thing that John shows us here about this love that should characterize us is its vivid illustration of what it isn't. He says, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother and by that selfish, self-serving act proved he wasn't of God, he was of the evil one. See, Cain killing Abel is this archetypical story in the Bible of unrighteousness and failing to love. And Cain and Abel, if you're not familiar, were actually the two children first mentioned from Adam and Eve, the first couple. And after Adam and Eve chose lawlessness in their own rebellion against God, they reaped the consequences in their family in this murderous story in Genesis 4 of Cain killing Abel. Cain killed Abel. And why did he kill him? Well, John tells us because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, in the story in Genesis 4, we read that Cain was filled with his jealousy and pride. 
He watched his brother Abel live in right relationship with God and be received by God as a result. And Cain was full of bitterness and and God comes and God warns him about his heart and the sin that wants to overcome him. But Cain resisted that warning and instead he lets it take hold in his heart and the hatred and the selfishness builds and overflows in this epic uh, killing of his brother, slaughtering of his own brother. Now in referencing Cain, John's doing two things for us as he instructs us. First, he's showing the church what love isn't. We see that. That's definitely not what love is. But second, he's also showing us why we, as followers of Jesus, are also hated by the world. Look at verse 13. He's making a comparison here. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, he's talking to the church, that the world hates you. And the implication is that the world hates you just like Cain, who was of the evil one, hated Abel, who was received by God. And the word here for us is don't be amazed. Christ said he don't be surprised when we are hated by the world. Don't be surprised when we follow God and his righteousness and love that we will face opposition in this world. It's not supposed to surprise us. It's evident. It's clear. But why? I mean, I want to know why. I want to be loved and liked. I don't want to be someone who faces hatred and opposition. So why? After all, John has just commanded us to love one another. How could loving other people result in hatred from other people? After all, isn't the world attracted to the fragrance of love? Well, I think yes and no. The world wants the fragrance of love, but the world doesn't want the substance of love. Thinking back to this idea of psychology of smell, as I was reading a little bit and looking into this this week, I saw that there's a Japanese company that's trying to capitalize on this powerful connection between these precious memories of ours and smell and fragrance. And one of the products that they've released is an aerosol spray that mimics the smell of the top of a cat's head. So if you love cats, the idea is that your home can smell like the thing that you love, but you won't have to deal with the mess and the, and the difficulty and the problems of owning a real cat. Well, in a similar way, Christ said, the love the world is attracted to is an imitation of the radical love of God. It's a love for the fragrance, but not for the substance of the real thing. The world wants love, but not the righteousness of the God who is love. The world wants love, but also wants to define for themselves what human flourishing is apart from relationship with God. And for them, the aphorism that we see all over Vancouver is the reality. Love is love. But in saying that, they've rejected the biblical teaching that actually, no, the God of the Bible in his perfections in righteousness. That God is love. Love that is first characterized by deep loyalty and a love for God and submission to his commands in the Bible. That is biblical love. Let me say that one more time. Love that is characterized by this deep loyalty and love first for God and submission to him and his commands for our flourishing. That is biblical love. But that sort of love is offensive. It's offensive to those who have rejected God and his good purposes for us. 
In Christ City, John tells us, do not be surprised if the world hates you like Cain hated Abel. So John says that we must not be like Cain. And he teaches us about this way that, that Cain uh, hated Abel and we are hated by the world and our loyalty to God and his love and his righteousness. He says, no, we must be instead something different. We must be like Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. John says, by this we know love, that he, that Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for you and I. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, God's children aren't like Cain. God's children are like Jesus. You see, hate takes from others for self. But love gives of self, willingly sacrificing it for others. This is love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The reality is that Jesus in his sacrificial death, though we fought him and spat at him and mocked him along the way, he continued on his path of redemption. And even when we were killing him, God's love love was displayed in Jesus' cry from the cross. And what did he say? What did he pray from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is where the love of the world and the love that the world admires is so unlike the radical love of the Bible. Because the world has no problem theoretically getting behind the sacrificial love of someone dying for someone else who's poor and vulnerable, especially if they're pretty decent, poor and vulnerable folk. And the world has no problem theoretically supporting the idea that those of means should help those who have none. And the world has no problem theoretically supporting the sacrifice of Jesus who modeled love for others with sacrifice. But what will the world do when it has enemies to forgive? C.S. Lewis once said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And when theory comes to practice, what will the world do when it actually requires deep sacrifice from them to love others? When it costs much. See, the model of Christian love in Jesus laying down his life, it's not giving a little bit of our excess away to benefit someone else. It's laying our lives down at great personal expense and cost to us. And what John's writing here is that the acid test of genuine Christian faith is this. It's whether the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. As we've been filled up with the love of God for us and his forgiveness and grace to us in Jesus. If it's spilling outwards from us then. And overflowing in a willingness to sacrifice. A willingness to forgive and love our enemies. A willingness to serve at great expense to ourselves. And John says in John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, John applies this truth. He applies it specifically to the churches he's writing to in verse 17. And to instances where someone would come along and they'd see the need of somebody else. They'd see, okay, there's a physical need that I could meet. But John talks about the way that they close their heart to that person. And they turn away from that person and go the other direction. And he writes this in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, not in theory, but in deed and in truth. What John's talking about in this verse and in this passage, I want to just highlight, is specifically about love for one another in the church. It's love for brothers. It's the Christian witness of our love together in the community of faith for one another. And I'm wondering, besides meeting needs, are there other practical applications of selfless love for us in the church that we can learn from the Bible and from the New Testament? Well, there are, and there's a lot of them. One of the most practical applications of large-scale Christian love in the church that I can think of is from Paul's writing in the book of Ephesians. I want to go and turn there with you for a moment because I want to actually unpack this a little more. I want to see some practical, concrete ways that we can work this out together and grow in this at Christ City Church, Kitsilano. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, and we'll cover it more or less verse by verse and just in some bullet point comments on this. Look at how he begins and applies this love in the local church in verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The first thing Paul highlights here is that Christian love, it celebrates the truth. Christian love is willing to speak honestly and openly and truthfully to one another in the community. In Christ City, I know there's been many times in my life when I'd rather not say what's true. I'd rather not speak truth to someone else because I'm worried about the cost in our relationship or I'm worried about what it might look like to do that. But Christian love is willing to sacrifice our preferences and speak truth to one another. Living with honesty, even when it costs us. Second thing that Paul says is in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The second thing he's saying here is that though it costs us, Christians love to seek to resolve our disputes and our conflict and to put our anger to death as we reconcile with one another. And he warns us this idea about the devil gaining a foothold. I just want to point out that in the context of Ephesians and what Paul is saying here, he's talking specifically about the way that the devil wants to get a foothold by getting into our relationships, by getting into the unity of the church and tearing it apart. And he's writing to us saying, Christian love fights not to give him a foothold. So you know what will set us apart then from the world in our Christian love in this community? It's when we show grace for those who differ. It's when the love of Christ within us leads us to die to ourselves as we lay our anger down and fight to be reconciled with one another in unity. And Paul goes on in verse 28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The third thing he's saying here is just this. Christian love looks like generosity. That's what Paul says in verse 28. He says, we steal. This is reality. We steal when we take from others. We take from others, whether it's time or resources or something else, and we use it merely for our own good. And Paul's flipping that on its head and saying, no, Christian love is the opposite. Christian love takes all the resources that are at our disposal and looks for ways to use those things eagerly for the good of others and generosity. In verse 29, he goes on, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The fourth thing he's saying here is just that Christian love speaks words of encouragement with one another. Christy, I want to grow in this. I'll be the first one to admit that in this last season, I've not been nearly as encouraging as I ought to have been. That words of criticism, words of complaint, those are probably the words that come most quickly to my mouth. But here Paul says, don't let the corrupting, tearing down, critiquing, pulling apart words flow out of your mouth. Rather, speak words of encouragement that build up the body of Christ. So I want to ask you, when was the last time that you held your tongue in speaking a word that would tear someone else down and spoke instead a concrete encouragement meant to build them up and encourage them in their walk with Jesus? Christian love willingly grows in this. And we show ourselves as being of Jesus in our love as we speak differently than a world that's full of critique and slander and harming words that are meant to tear down. As we become a place that is full of encouragement and building one another up through our words. Fifth, we look at verse 30. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What he's saying here is just this, Christian love, again, it fights for unity. Because Paul knows that the spirit of God isn't just your spirit and your spirit and your spirit separated out and a pluriform multitude of spirits. It's one Holy Spirit who fills the church. And we grieve this Holy Spirit of God when we allow our sin in any of these areas to begin to tear apart the unity of the church that the Holy Spirit himself is building. So Christ City, are you fighting for unity? We live in an incredibly splintered time when all around us are divisions. But within the church, we are to be a people that forbear with one another in love, that show grace and mercy, that give forgiveness, and that fight to be unified in the spirit of Jesus. But this unity requires death. It requires death to ourselves and to our preferences and our wants for the good of the other, even as Jesus has loved us. In summary, in this whole section, Paul says this in verses 31 to 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Christ City. Are you characterized by love? Or are you characterized by bitterness and complaining and anger? Are you full of kindness and tenderheartedness toward others? 
Are you someone who knows the way that Jesus has died for you? Well, you were his enemy. Well, you were fighting him and hating him. And are you, as you receive his forgiveness, becoming fuller and fuller of his love, so you can extend it outwards in mercy to others? Do you forgive as you've been forgiven? Do you love as you have been loved? See, Paul says quite a lot in this text as specific applications of Christian love in the community of the church. But John simply writes in our text in summary, in chapter 3, verse 18, this. It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The love that characterizes Christians, Christ City, it's not to be abstract or whimsical or ethereal. It's supposed to be concrete and sacrificial. And if we are growing in these concrete expressions, concrete sacrificial expressions of Christian love, we will have great confidence in Jesus. I want to just turn now really briefly, like I said, the only the 10% of this sermon or less at our second point in verses 19 and then also 23 to 24. John says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. There's a lot that's going on in this passage. And I haven't even read all the verses. I skipped a couple. But I want you to hear this, Christ. I think this is the point that John's making. What he's trying to show us, I think, is that Christian belief and Christian practice and Christian experience, they all work together in this symbiotic relationship. And they work together to give us great confidence that we are walking in Jesus. But when we fail to believe and trust in Jesus, who loves us, his enemies, and forgives our sins, or when we fail to practice our faith and actually lay our lives down in love, like we've been reading about, our confidence before God falters. Our prayers can suffer. We can begin to experientially feel and and doubt the presence of his Holy Spirit. I want to just say to you this, if you're feeling that right now, I want to encourage you. The gospel is for you and me in moments of our discouragement. The love of God is for us. There is a way that's simple and straightforward into deeper fellowship with God and deeper confidence that you are abiding in Christ. It's a simple way forward. It's not mysterious and it's right in this passage. You will grow in confidence that you are walking with Jesus when you trust in the message of the gospel. And when you take steps of obedience and faith. So if you're struggling, let me encourage you to again turn to the Lord, not in condemnation, but in trust. And to remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says this, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ said there's no sin that he is not willing to forgive. If you're finding that you are failing in Christian love, then confess it to him. 
Call it what it is. Call sin, sin, and come before the Lord in repentance and in faith, knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all of your unrighteousness. And as you do that, then take another step. Take a step of obedience and faith. As you confess your sin, churn away from it. You're identifying it, you're calling it what it is, but you're making a decision to turn the other direction. And in the step of faith, you're asking yourself in obedience to this text, okay, God, how can I begin to love this week, this afternoon, tomorrow, in my life at Christ City Church? Who do I need to forgive? How can I serve? What can I give? How do I begin to live in obedience to the love that you've called me to? Lord, Would you help me? Pray for the help that he gives. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Turn to him and he will help you. You see, Christ City, the only way forward to greater assurance in Christ is through faith in his gospel and obedience to his commands. It's simple. It's trusting and obeying. Turning to God in faith in the good news of his gospel and obedience to his commands. So let me encourage you to surrender to him and ask him to help you and to grow in assurance in him. Christ City, the book of Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting and dividing and going through us deep into our hearts. But it's the word of God that we need. John's got lots of hard words that are convicting for us as we go through it. But we need these words. These words are what we need. We need to be awakened as Christians that have grown complacent. We need to be awakened into the fullness of Christian love and the richness of fellowship with God that John desires for us. That we would walk fully in flourishing life with Jesus as Jesus desires us to. And there's great hope for us along the way as we hear these words. Because we can be assured that God is at work towards this. He desires it from us. And his spirit is actively present at Christ City Church, Kitsilano, growing us in this way. And I want to say that I've been seeing it. This past year, I have watched evidences of this love and this Holy Spirit at work in incredible ways. He is at work growing us. Won't you, won't you join with me in pressing in and leaning in even more to what he's doing here in our midst? There's a great purpose in this. I'm going to leave you with one last thing. As Christ City, as we grow in loving one another here in this church, our witness will increase in this city. As our love deepens for one another, our witness will expand outwards. As we grow in Christ's love for one another, it's kind of like we're becoming this French bakery operating on all cylinders and the fragrance of what's brewing in our kitchens is going out of the vents outward into the city and cascading all around and filling the alleys and the byways and showing forth that something special is happening here by the power of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, our love for one another here in this church is the greatest apologetic of the truthfulness of Christianity that we have. It's exactly what Jesus said when he told his disciples in John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I ask, would you increase the fragrance of the love of Christ in our community? We want to grow as your church. We want to be a church that holds fast to your word, that delights in your gospel, that walks in obedience, and that is full of Christian love by the power of Jesus. We pray for it. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Won't you use us for your glory here in this city? Amen.